How did the word immigrant become such a loaded term? In our news media, immigrants are often talked about with disdain or at the very least in the cold and impersonal language of economics. Low-skilled or high-skilled, an economic net contributor or a drain on public services. For decades, immigrants have been treated as scapegoats for everything from failing public services to violent crime, and much too often as less than human. But how did we get here? How did the public conversation about immigration become so toxic? Is there another way forward, an alternative to the hostile environment? Those are our big questions tonight. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, and it's the Weekly Economics Podcast, live from London. So good, so good. Okay, so we're here at SOAS, part of the University of London, with a live audience and author of a brand new book published today, Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats. She's an academic and writer whose work has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, and of course, the weekly economics podcast. Please give a warm welcome to Maya Goodfellow. Okay, great. So we're going to dive in. And we're going to start with the story of the Windrush scandal, which hopefully is something a lot of folks are familiar with, and work backwards from there. So the scandal came to light in early 2018, and a lot has happened in the past 18 months around it. So, Maya, could you remind us how it was first exposed and what was going wrong? Yes, yeah, so essentially, uh, I think quite a lot of organisations that work with immigrants and work with people who are trying to navigate the policies that are part of the hostile environment already knew that this was happening, already knew that people were being caught up in the web of the hostile environment. But it was really the work of The Guardian, Amelia Gentleman, the Runnymede Trust and JCWI, which is the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, who really brought to light the fact that it was black Britons who had the right to be in the UK, who'd come to the UK as citizens of colonies and former colonies throughout the 60s and 70s, um, and who couldn't prove that they had the right documentation to be in the UK, so couldn't prove they had been here legally Mm. for all these years and couldn't prove that they had been in the UK for decades, who were essentially denied medical treatment, denied housing, losing their jobs, some people were deported. Um, And this really, I think, showed the sharp end of the hostile environment, and that not only is it these people who we know as the so-called Windrush generation now but also people who are still experiencing the effects of those policies, are still experiencing being locked out of healthcare and basic services, basically, in the UK. And I think one of the things that the journalist Gary Young talks about is that the government didn't expect the kind of outcry from the public that happened with the Windrush scandal. So the government had already been informed by... They'd already been informed by multiple different people that this was potentially going to happen or was already happening. So that people who shouldn't have been caught up in these this set of policies were being caught up in them. And they didn't do anything about it. Mm. And so what Gary Young says is they just didn't expect, they didn't anticipate that the public would care, would yeah. care about this group of people because they would they see them as disposable, unimportant, or not people that worthy of sympathy of the rest of the British public. And so I think it tells us something actually about, whilst it's awful, it also tells us something about how people's minds can be changed in immigration and how there is room for manoeuvre on this subject that politicians have said for decades. They just have to listen to people's concerns and respond to them. I think it tells us something about that, about mm. that, that not being true. Yeah, so I mean, obviously that's one of the impacts of Windrush, but kind of more broadly... Do you, do you think that there's kind of direct 
lines that we can draw between the scandal and the response to it and what we can see now? I mean, obviously Amber, Amber Rudd resigned, but is there anything else? Yeah, so Amber Rudd resigned not because of the set of policies. She resigned for misleading or because she was seen to be misleading Parliament about the deportation targets that she said didn't exist and then it later uh, emerged in a letter that she did that, that, mm, that she did email, know about yeah. about this um so she did she didn't even resign because of the impact of the policies right it was because of something else mm. and although there was a lot of hand-wringing from conservative politicians including Sajid Javid who was momentarily the home sec like very little has changed there's been some repealing of some of the policies and that is also down to activist groups who've been campaigning for changes in terms of data collection and what the data that government collects on us through things like the NHS and schools. Mm. Um, but ultimately, a lot of the policies remain in place. And I think some of the fundamental arguments that led to the hostile environment about immigration, about it being treated as a problem, also continue to remain in the debate. So I don't think it challenged the fundamentals of, of that debate. I think in some circles it did, but in terms mm. of how some of our mainstream politicians are talking about it, I think it remains relatively the same. And I guess one of the things that is also... Um, is in some ways most concerning about it is that the response, even like from politicians across the spectrum, was okay, this this is a bad thing to have happened, but we do still need policies to deal with undocumented immigrants. Mm. And I mean, they didn't say undocumented immigrants, they talked about illegal immigrants. Mm. And there was still this there was still this kind of reproduction of who is who is the figure that needs to be um addressed with policy, who needs to be targeted without any kind of consideration about all the many reasons people might become undocumented. So there was a dehumanisation, I think, in the response mm. to the Windrush scandal from politicians, I think, on the left and right. Yeah, and I definitely think that one of the one of the other outcomes of it was this kind of idea of an exceptionalism around a certain group of migrants who'd been here for a long time and contributed to services and sp spoke English and had, you know, been part of a culture that people accepted. And so... There were other migrants who perhaps didn't fit that bill who felt that the they weren't included in the Windrush, you know, in the sympathy around, around the Windrush scandal. Yeah, I think that this is something that you find time and again, actually, and you find it now. Uh, maybe I'm talking about the general election too early, but I'll just mention... Uh, a spoiler. That, yeah, about, <laughs> about thinking about the election and how we can expect it will pan out from what the Conservatives have already said about immigration is like one of the things they do is they talk about the productive immigrants, right? The highly skilled mm. immigrants that we want coming to Britain. And this is really this setting up of the good versus bad, who yeah. contributes, who doesn't, who should be here, who should be allowed rights and who shouldn't. Mm. And even if you look at the differences of visas, who should be allowed certain, like the right to stay in the country for a certain amount of time mm. and who should actually have the amount of time they're allowed to stay in the country really severely limited it's people who are seen as low-skilled immigrants and so there is even like as people are quote-unquote being let into the country there is still a difference between who, who is seen as the better the mm. better migrant and the migrant who you need just for a period of time but who is somewhat disposable in terms of you want to be able to get them out of the country at your at, within your kind of choosing of time frame. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely one of the things in the book for me that kind of was the most, I guess one of the most important things that came out of it was this, a, a real deconstruction of the di of the hierarchy of, you know, which are the deserving migrants, the, di the dichotomies as you talk about, and how that's connected to labour flows and all that kind of stuff. We're going to, yeah, we're going to come back to that later as well. But what I wanted to talk about in the first instance was a kind of, I guess, the big question of how we got here. Like, you know, to re we got to a, a point in, in 2014 and on onwards where a government was able to say 
explicitly, no holds barred, we're creating a hostile environment for migrants because we want, we want them to leave, essentially. Um, and I think what's brilliant about the book is you talk at length about the fact that this didn't just happen out of nowhere. For us to get to a place where that was politically possible um, was the culmination of decades of anti-immigration sentiment. So I was wondering if you can talk a bit more about that, about that journey that we went on to get to a place where that was okay. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's not totally down to Theresa May and the Conservatives. I mean, yes, it is in the sense of, you know, they cooked up those policies that were in the, 20, the 2014 and 2016 Immigration Acts that make up the hostile environment. They had those bans, you know, driving around parts of um, the UK saying, like, go leave the, yeah, go home, leave the country. And so you don't, you, you, I don't want to ignore that, but I think to suggest that this, like, hostility was injected into the system with the Conservative government is really to misread the past... 50 or 100 years in the UK, if not longer. And the, part of the reason, part of the impetus for writing the book and the reason for even making that point is one of the things that happened during, right after the referendum, the EU referendum, is there was a lot of politicians kind of saying, oh, what is Britain? What has Britain's become this place of hostility? It's become this place that's so unwelcome to people. I think Andy Burnham, um, the, the Labour politician, is one of the people who said this, that Britain is becoming a place I don't recognise. And whilst I think in some ways it's true, because there's the specificity of how people are being treated now and how the discourse looks and the policy, and you don't want to ignore the impact of that, to say it's a, it's Britain's become a place it has never meet, been ignores years and years and years and years and years of anti-immigration poli- policy and rhetoric. And so... I guess what I wanted to do was to track that record, to look through British history and look at the policies that have been implemented by successive governments. And this is where it is, some, in some ways, the most depressing is you find Conservative and Labour governments implementing policy that was, is specifically intended in the 60s and 70s to keep out people of colour from the colonies and former colonies. And you find politicians across the spectrum accepting the idea that immigration is a problem to be controlled, but immigration of a certain kind. Mm. And so it isn't... I mean, there are efforts to deport people back to Ireland, white Irish people, but the discourse is far less about that group of people, even when the numbers are as high in terms of the numbers of people migrating. Um, And so is really this idea that immigration is a problem economically and that it's a problem culturally for Britain mm. that you find repeating itself throughout history. It's just the figure of who is the, the problem migrant shifts in some ways. Mm. In some ways it also remains the same, but it shifts over time. And so we really, I think, got to this point where we have a government saying we want to create a hostile environment for undocumented immigrants. We get to that point by politicians across the spectrum accepting Immigration is a problem. British people don't like immigration. We need to do something about it, and we need to control it, as Ed Miliband maybe would say with his mug, put controls on immigration to make sure that British people feel secure and safe and that they aren't upset by the levels of immigration in the UK. Mm. Yeah, in the book you talk at great length about the kind of legacy of Thatcher and how that was picked up by New Labour. Um, I'm sure people are kind of already aware of the ways in which New Labour adopted a lot of Thatcherite policies, but could you talk specifically a little bit about um, how this showed up for Blair and Brown? Because that was something particularly interesting to me when I read it that I didn't know. Yeah, so one of the, um, I think one of the big falsehoods made the big one of the main false arguments made about the new labor years or at least what i would argue is an inaccurate argument is that anti-immigration sentiment 
rose during the new Labour years because new Labour were too soft. They let too many people in. The immigration system was too liberal and people were responding to a rise in immigration numbers. And so their their natural response was disliking immigration because they weren't asked about this change. To some extent, it's true that New Labour did change the immigration systems in, in some ways, right? It did, they did. They fundamentally changed how the immigration system worked, so it was possible to get different kinds of visas. It was easier for some people to come into the country, although their rights weren't always great. And so I think that's the, the missing st- part of that story sometimes is assuming a liberal system meant a welcoming system where people had access to all gamut of rights when they came into the UK. It's not true. Mm. There was, for some people, deportation hanging over their heads. They were only able to come for a certain amount of time, weren't able to recoup the money that they'd spent getting to the UK because they had to leave the country before they could do that. But the, the, the thing that New Labour really did, and one of the things that is ignored, I think, is from the get-go, they were really hostile about asylum seekers and refugees. Mm. They had a really, really hostile set of policies and they had a really hostile rhetoric in terms of how they talked about people who were trying to seek asylum they talked a lot about so-called genuine or fake asylum seekers bogus asylum seekers and I think that to assume that people are going to decouple immigration and asylum is really to misunderstand how the debate functions and so on the one hand they're saying immigration is good for the economy when they first come in and in the 2000s they're saying actually immigration is good for the economy that is a different message from what has come before but at the same time they're saying oh yeah but we need to make sure you know we really need to control the immigration system because all these asylum seekers are going to come in mm-hmm. and they're like they're fake they're not real they're not really seeking asylum so we we have to have a really tight system to think that those two can sit alongside one another and not reproduce xenophobia i think mm-hmm. is inaccurate but what you also find is then a coarsening and a hardening of the rhetoric around immigration as well. Mm. So they start with a really tough stance on asylum, but even their, immigra- their immigration stance, they say it's good for the economy, but at the same time they're saying, but we're going to have, like, we're going to make sure that people are deported, we're going to have immigration raids, we're going to make sure that everyone is policed so only the right people are in the country. Mm. And you're already setting up the framing there of like threats of people being a problem of this idea that people who maybe are undocumented or aren't contributing in the right way Mm. need to be dealt with. And so you reproduce the arguments that you ostensibly want to be debunking. And I think that that was one of the core problems with New Labour is it was never really their major interest to change that, Mm. to change that debate in a fundamental way. And one of the things that shows that I think, is Jack Straw's response to the, there was a report called The Future of Multi-Ethnic Britain, which was yeah. um, written by the Runnymede Trust. And it was talking about the way to make sure that Britain is an inclusive place and that it doesn't become really narrow and exclusionary or doesn't continue to be narrow and exclusionary. And one of the lines, like, it's very, it's not even very forceful. I mean, I would probably put it in much stronger terms than they do, but they say something like, you know, there's a connection between whiteness and Britishness. And Omar Khan from the Runnymede Trust talks about this. He says the Jack Straw and the new Labour government were on board with the report. Jack Straw was supposed to come and talk at this report's launch. And as soon as the tabloids got hold of this, there was front pages saying, like, it's racist to use the word British now. This report is claiming that, you know, white British people are just racist. And Jack Straw instantly backed away from this and said, you know, the problem is the left don't understand patriotism and they need to get on board with it. And so there was a shift of Jack Straw being on board with this report to responding to these tabloids saying, actually, I'm, I'm not really anything to do with this, that kind of tells us it wasn't, they really, never really wanted to fundamentally change that debate on what Britain was and what immigration was and could be in Britain. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, I think they actually upheld a lot of the very fundamental anti-immigration arguments at the centre of the debate. Which kind of enabled us to get to where we are now, right? Continuing to build on those blocks. Um, in the, in, if, so if you don't get a chance to read the book, I would definitely recommend the long read in The Guardian, uh, which some of you might have read, which is fantastic. And in that long read, you talk about the dizzying maze of kind of the immigration system and what that's like for people to navigate. Um, so could you maybe share some of the personal stories that you talk about that, in that and that you also profile in the book? Yeah, I talked to a lot of people who were just trying to figure out what their status was and how or how to get status and how really to make sense of the British immigration uh, laws that we that exist. And I talked to also to quite a lot of people who work in immigration policy and, and people who work on immigration law. And they were saying, you know, even we don't even we don't understand all the ins and outs of how this, how this functions. And just a lot of people I spoke to said. The cost, the cost is huge. So even there's ridiculous things like you have to pay to take these life in the UK tests, these citizenship Mm. tests. You have to pay £150 to take an English exam if if the state requires you take one. Um, And at the same time, there is very little state support, if any, for people who are trying to make it through that system. So there is almost no legal aid, Mm. right? It's almost non-existent. I also talked to quite a few people who were able to get together the money to find a lawyer, but then the lawyers that they we they, they found just either didn't turn up to court on the day of the, the case or they didn't give them the right information. They didn't tell them what they should submit in order to try and get their asylum claim heard. And a lot of people just totally left in limbo. And I think what a lot of it was was the cost, but also the time. Mm-hmm. The people just waiting and waiting and waiting, whether to hear from <laughs> lawyers or whether to hear from the home office. Mm-hmm. And there was just such bad communication... So people don't know where they're at. They don't understand why their claim has been rejected. They just aren't told about the ins and outs of their their case. And it is a really, it's a damning indictment of the system that we've got to this point because it is partly built up over years and years and years. And I think partly it is intentional. So I interviewed one Mm. guy who works in, um, he gives advice to um, people in an immigration centre. So these are like, these are, essentially charities right so if there's something you want to do after this I mean I would say give money give time to some of those organizations because what they do is they give they give support to people they help them to navigate the system and this one guy I spoke to said what it seems like is that the state is trying to make it so difficult intentionally trying to make it difficult for people to navigate this system so that they leave and give up and one of the people I interviewed said you know I've spent so much of my life trying to make it through the immigration system. I can't help but feel like this is just a, a technique used by the government to get rid of me. And there's a, there's a quote in the book, isn't there, of a, a, one of the, I don't know, is a guard or something saying to one of the people, if I've pissed you off, I've yeah. done my job. My job is to make a hostile environment for you. Yeah, yeah. The, the aim is to make this difficult for you. It's not to... And this is what happens when you have a government, when you have government targets, when you have government messages that are about hostility, it's going to filter down through the system to think it, it's not going to, I think... Um, misunderstands how the point of those, the point of that rhetoric and the point of those targets. And there was even one woman I talked to who said she was here studying. For numerous reasons, her visa lapsed and she wasn't able to get a continuation of her visa to finish her studies. And she was just trying to finish her, the studies that she'd come to do and then go back home. And she wasn't able to do that. She ended up being taken into Yarl's Wood. And when she got released, she said, OK, I'll, I will go back. I'll go back. I will, I'll leave the country. I don't want to do this anymore. But the Home Office had her passport. And so her lawyer was writing to the Home Office saying she's agreed to leave. She's booked a plane ticket as, per, as uh, upon your request. 
we need the pa- her passport so she can leave. No reply from the Home Office. She turns up at the airport, no passport, she can't leave the country. So she can't access state support because the government's saying, you don't have the right to be here, but she can't get her passport to leave. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is the kind of system that people are having to exist within mm-hmm. with almost like n- no way to really hold mm-hmm. government accountable. And one of the things you talk about in the in the book is how often this leads people to awful things, including suicide. I think there was a case of someone who was waiting 17 years, and then in the end, or is that a different case of someone who took his life? Yeah, there's an... I mean, there is... So um, the Institute of Race Relations keeps a record or attempts to keep a record of all the numbers, uh, all the names and cases, actually, of people who have died, um, either died by suicide or died by some other means through the British immigration system. And I think that that is a really, really important... It's a really important yeah. record for all the people who have just... And that isn't even everyone, right? It's the record that they can, they can keep. It's the people that they come across and the cases that they find. But there are so many cases. There's one, there's one case of someone who was denied the right to stay in the UK, who I believe was trying to seek asylum here, who was told he wasn't going to get any more state support and set himself on fire outside of a refugee centre. And it's things like that that tell us... How, how desperate is, it is. And how yeah. the system is functioning, yeah. yeah. When, I, when I read the book personally, I think I, I definitely was shocked, even though, even through, through the work I do, I you know, come into to contact a lot with people who are on the sharp end of navigating the asylum system and, and um, the, the broader migration system in general, but I still found it incredibly shocking to hear about these kind of long, interminable waits that people have and just the, the extent to which people are like, I've, I've lost my life, you know, I've, I've given my life to this, I've been separated from my family. Um, and one of the other things that I thought was really useful about the book was... When, how you talk about the ways in which the hostile environment policies specifically are kind of changing the the, the nature of a lot of the public services that we use. So um, I was wondering if you tell us a little bit more about how the hostile environment is turning people, public se- service workers, into, into border guards, into agents of the state. Yeah, I think that's really the way to see it. And I think that that's also the way to see it in order... I think most people are now on board... I mean, saying that most people, but I think people have now woken up to some extent with with the Windrush scandal of the damage that the hostile environment can do. But I think it's a good way to engage people who work in the public sector. So thinking about uh, doctors, thinking about nurses, teachers, people who are now, it's not part of their job to have to check people's immigration status or it shouldn't be part of their job. And that's how a lot of people feel. I interviewed people who, um, activists with the group, Docs, not cops. They train people who work in the NHS. They give them training on what the realities of the hostile environment is in terms of affecting people, people having to produce identification if they want to get certain forms of medical treatment. And what they say is those people don't actually realise. Mm-hmm. Like, those people doing that work don't really realise the ramifications of it. They don't realise exactly what that means because they're busy doing so many other things, right? They're busy doing their job. And so if once you sit down and explain to them, so many of those people, doctors and nurses, say, we don't want to have anything to do with this. This isn't our... Our role is not to be carrying out the, bordering, the border fo- policing that the state wants us to. It's not... We aren't border guards. That's yeah. not what we're supposed to be. And I think... Seeing it like that is a good way of, A, getting people on board, but a really powerful way of showing just how pernicious it is, mm. how it's really flowed through through society. And Liberty have done a lot of work on this, about thinking just how pervasive it, these, these checks are and how the border doesn't, it doesn't just exist mm. where we think it does. Yeah. When you're in the yeah. airport or, you know, at 
the end of where the land meets the sea is in is in our everyday is in the world around us and we should all be really clued onto that mm. in terms of how that's functioning and how people who don't necessarily have the right documentation are then made to feel and trying to navigate that world which is incredibly incredibly um scary and i mean there was the news just today that the government has essentially been co-opting religious and community organizations paying them to help find rough sleepers to deport them from the UK. Like mm-hmm. that tells us just how deeply the these this idea of immigration enforcement has gone into like its tentacles into society. Mm, yeah, exactly. And in a lot of the the research that I did for the hostile environment study that we wrote at Neon, at least some of the kind of economic myths that are propagated in the debate were emerging as well as I was kind of talking to people on all sides. Um, which obviously you touch on in the book and I think do some really amazing myth busting around that. So it would be great if you could, I guess, just kind of highlight what are the most popular economic myths about uh, immigration and then let's debunk them. Yeah, um, I mean, I think I feel like everyone should be pretty, pretty familiar with them because they've been repeated so much. But I, there's the, there's the idea that immigration or immigrants come to take jobs at the same time as supposedly taking from the state in the form of benefits. So it's kind of paradoxical, like which is which is that you're doing, yeah. um, and it's supposed to be both. So this idea of health tourism versus this idea of like the the person coming in and taking away so-called British jobs from British workers, to borrow a phrase from Gordon Brown. and But there's also this idea that like immigration is bad for public services, right? So that it's undermining, people coming into the country is undermining um, the number of uh, the school places, thinking about our NHS and the, pre- the so- so-called pressures put on our NHS. And to the extent that this is so widely believed, I actually did an event last night, and someone in the audience said this. They said, you've talked all about this economic it not being an economic issue, but isn't it true that there's not enough school places for children because there's too many immigrants coming into the country? That is so widely, it's so, it, because it seems common sense. Mm. But to debunk it, um, I mean, one of the problems is this, is like it's assumed to be supply and demand. So there's a finite number of jobs. And so if people come into the country, then there's too many people, there's a finite number of jobs. And so only a certain number of people are going to get those jobs. What it ignores is that people who come into the country spend they create jobs, right? Mm. They, cre- they, they also create demand mm. in the sense of needing doctors, nurses, teachers, and you can plan for that, right? This is something that the economist um, Jonathan Portis talks about, and I interviewed him for the book, is that it, just, it does just take better planning, mm. right? It's like any other population change, and that's how we should see it. We shouldn't mark it out as different from all other forms of demographic change. You can quite easily plan for that, um, and it just requires investment. And it just ha- so happens that the planning has not been great. The investment has been almost non-existent. Mm. And so that is how we should see the problem of our public services, not of immigration. And although I'm kind of loath to... I don't think there's anything wrong with people coming and using the state. And, you know, we have a, a social security system for, for a reason. I don't, I don't want to claim that or suggest that people who come and maybe need to use the state and rely on NHS or claim any form of benefit are a problem. But it is also true that people are far more likely to be working, for instance, in our health service than they are to be using it. It, It's Mm. just a fact. Mm. It it is how the system is functioning. Our system is functioning by people coming into the country and doing jobs that we don't have the people to do already. Yeah, and I think another thing that you touched on there that's important to lift up is that idea of the decimation of public services. Like, I think it's it maybe isn't news to folks, but it one of the things that certainly seems true for me is that migrants have have always been kind of the 
the scapegoats for these wholesale austerity cuts to public services. Some organising that I did a couple of years back now, actually, in, in, in Barking, and a, and a massive part of on talking to the communities there, a lot of what they were saying is kind of similar things. You know, there's not enough... Um, the, the school had to decide between hiring a maths teacher and hiring two alternative language provision assistants, and so they went with that, and it's because of all the immigrants and, they, you know, that we can't have more maths teachers. And the kind of conversation we were having is... Well, well, shouldn't you be able to have both? Shouldn't our schools have enough funding that they can just hire math teachers if they need mm-hmm. them? But moving us on, because we don't have all the time in the world, um, I just wanted to touch a little bit on this idea of the good, bad migrant. So again, that dichotomy that swirls around in public discourse is this idea that migrants contribute and there was obviously a big campaign around that um, around that some people might have seen in the tube which is like um, I contribute I'm a doctor and a migrant and that kind of stuff um, and it's a complex it's a, it's, a, it's a complex argument I guess and so and you touch on it a little bit in the book but kind of what are some of the things that are at stake when we talk about migrants in terms of their contribution yeah I mean so first I would say I, I totally get it there's people who feel really angry that the debate is depicting them in a way that just isn't doesn't tally with their lived experience right mm. so you don't want to deny there are people who are doing there's one guy I interviewed who was working three jobs like just to make ends meet and to he was just saying you know to be called like a scrounger to be called yeah. like the, the person who doesn't contribute is so incredibly frustrating so to highlight that for, for people who really feel like the discourse is just denying what they are living every single day I think is important and need to be visible in in that in the labor and all that yeah exactly but I think there's I do think there's also a problem with assume uh, with reproducing a logic that people's right to be here and their worth is contingent upon their economic contribution Mm. right and so if we end if we end the conversation by saying migrants do contribute x amount to the economy then do we reproduce the same discourse that kind of uh, that got us to this point where we're even talking about contribution right do we do we deny the people the right to be here if they aren't contributing in a way that the government thinks is is important or right and do we only argue for people who are seen to be as legitimate or seen to be as the right kind of worker or the kind of worker that we need mm. do is that the way that we want to talk and I think we want to talk about people's humanity as well and I think we don't get to the humanity aspect yeah. if we stop at the point where we're saying people contribute mm. I think you have to go beyond that mm. That's a really good way of answering that question. Thank you. I've never heard that before. Um, I want to. So I want to talk about race for a little bit. Um, you obviously talk about it at length in the book, and it was a part of it that um, I found particularly interesting. And so. Uh, in the book you write, if people's dislike of immigration could be understood entirely as a byproduct of economic concerns, how do we explain the 40% of Leave voters who said in one poll that they would be willing to experience some drop in personal income as long as immigration was reduced? So should we conclude then that for a lot of Leave voters um, and anti-immigration people in general that it's, it's also about race? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not only about race for Leavers, I think. Um, yeah. I, I mean, if you look at the response to, like, the... If you look at some of the people who were at the forefront of the Remain campaign, like David Cameron, they were reproducing really racialised framing about immigration long before the referendum was even a political possibility. Um, but I do think there's an argument, particularly, there's particularly um, widespread on the left, that if you fix the economy, if you make things fairer economically, then people's prejudices and their racism yeah. is going to disappear love that one. right yeah <laughs> and this is actually something someone i interviewed who worked for ed Miliband. that's what he said he said you know ed's view was he wins the election 
Um, yeah, no, um, he, you know, you win the election and then you you fix the economy and then you can address people's like that. That's how or you address people's. It kind of automatically happens. Yeah, as well. or, or it's an automatic thing. Yeah. People's people's dislike of immigration is just going to go away because they're going to feel better in their day. All structural racism, all or homophobia, or yeah. whatever. Yeah, and yeah. it's like it really ignores the fact that it reproduces an idea that it is only and always the so-called white working class that dislike immigration, right? It totally ignores that race was always an elite project. Mm. It, was always, it was disseminated through empire and it was cooked up by, you know, academics and scientific racists. Mm. Um, and it's still propagated by some of the most elite people in Britain, but it's also believed by people who are economically fine. Mm. And I think it also... We just know that it's about race as well. We know yeah. the debate is about race because we just need to look at that refer- that referendum campaign, yeah. right? We need to look at the fact that that referendum campaign, it was supposedly about um, free movement in Europe, which a lot of people would have as coded as white, even though, like, Europe, shock, isn't <laughs> white. Um, <laughs> but that's how people see it, right? So it's, yeah. co- it's coded as white in terms of European movement. But that, that breaking point poster... That was not white Europeans crossing the border into the UK, right? Mm. That was people who were racialized, people who were racialized other in that image. And so what that tells us is this is still, it is still very much about race and it's still very much about race because what you find is not only is it the certain groups of immigrants that are marked out as a problem or the groups of immigrants that are racialized as other, including Eastern Europeans, but you also find that Who's seen to belong in Britain in terms of how the debate functions is like it's white British people that are at the centre of that debate. So one of the things that I found kind of came up a few times whilst I was doing my research is politicians, but also in certain documentaries that were made about immigration, the way they would talk about certain towns, they would choose a town to go and study, right? To say, okay, what is immigration doing to Britain? We need to understand why people dislike immigration. So we're gonna go, we're gonna go to Slough wherever right we're gonna go here and we're gonna the reason we've chosen this place is because the proportion of white british people in this place 20 years ago was 95 percent. it's now 70 percent. these stats are made up but i haven't I remembered that but um it's now 70 percent. what's happened why is immigration a problem and what that tells us is it is the white british person that is the marker of of the norm in Britain, of who is mm. considered to be British in that debate, right? Yeah, that was... that. The, I'm going to misremember it, but there was a section of the book, I think it was an MP, Caroline Flynn. It was Caroline Flynn, yeah. Yes. Um, and she, and she, she was talking... Uh, there was a quote from her about her constituency and about how they... She, like, in one sentence talks about the fact that immigration is rising and the percentage of white British people is falling and that, mm. that that's inherently a problem and also it's it's a kind of cause and effect thing. Mm -hmm. And so in that completely erases any... British people of colour who aren't mm. immigrants who mm. feel anything in that in that whole yeah. scenario. Yeah, and it's and it's also how I guess one of the the reason it's very difficult or it can be really difficult to pin down in public debate is not only because politicians have spent years saying it's not racist to be concerned about immigration, but it's also because of how it functions in the debate and it basically culture becomes a proxy for race. So yeah. a lot of these politicians or these people who are um, you know anti-immigration um, professionals. Uh, I won't name any names. They're in the book. Um, so democratic. <laughs> um, I, you know, I hate to give them more more airtime. Um, <laughs> uh, but the the argument they make, right? It's new. The argument of the new right that was around in the eighties and that Powell was um, in with. 
it, what they say is, oh, it's not, it's not about race, right? We don't think we're superior to people who are black and brown. It's not about that. We don't dislike immigration because of skin color. What we don't like is different culture. And there's mm. certain cultures that are just incompatible with British culture. And it's odd, right? Because they never, they, it is racially coded. Because mm. the cultures that are the problem for them is their so-called Indian culture or Pakistani culture, Muslim culture. These are, it's never like American culture that yeah. is a problem, right? They're like, yeah. these are similar. This is similar to British culture, so it's there was, fine. A, there was another quote that was like, it's very different, 100,000 Australians yes. coming than 100,000 Afghans, Afghans coming. Yeah. And I was Cause, like... Because <laughs> of culture. That's yeah. what they say. Oh, yeah, 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 they yeah, say yeah, it's yeah. because of culture. Yeah. And what's, I think, like, I just go back to Stuart Hall on this and it's this idea that there is such a thing as British culture that is static mm. that I think we should really really challenge and the thing that Hall says is like you know the most British thing and this is me just really butchering Stuart Hall quote but the most British thing that what does anyone know about an English person except that they love a cup of tea and where is tea grown there is no tea grown in England it's in Ceylon Sri Lanka India and he says that is the history that we need to understand mm. British history is intertwined with all these other histories and we have to understand that to even understand Britain to think to, to think that Britain is some kind of bounded static place where culture is pure and there is a British culture mm. just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't match to how we live our lives and it doesn't match to the, the history that we do know that exists about Britain but there is constantly like kind of sidelined in our public debate Mm. I mean, the next question was about the legacy of empire, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's also fine. No, I mean, we were naturally going there, but I, you, I did want to just spend a second on it because you talk in the book about this idea of a collective denial and uh, uh, lots of great academics like Nadine Edelnani and um, many others have written about this idea of the kind of nostalgia for empire and how that shows up in public consciousness or doesn't show up. Mm. Um, and yeah, so if you could like just give us a, a really quick explainer on how you think that that manifest in the conversation around immigration yeah I think there's still this idea of like going back to a Britain that was once great and it also kind of translates to a Britain that was also once white and so this is something that you do find people talk about is like there was a there was a I think a cartoon about Roman Britain on the BBC a while ago yeah. was it Roman yeah I think it was no. Roman Britain it was in it the cartoon was I think the family that they showed was multiracial I think, from what I remember. And it was outcry. This is political correctness gone mad. And like the, one of the reasons the empire, I think, is remembered in this way or misremembered or kind of exists in the background of the debate as it does is because it's also this idea of like racial purity that once existed. So this idea that Britain was once white and it was the, kind of ruled the rest of the world and that those were the days. And you find that in the history of the debate as well. So there's some really interesting quotes that I found where people were talking about migrants coming from... Well, they weren't migrants, they were citizens of, citizens of Britain coming from India and I think Pakistan. And the, the, this, there was a white British person who was overheard in a cafe in Bradford, I think, um, having a conversation about this. And he says, you know, we used to rule over them and we were superior and now look at them, they're coming over here and they're doing these jobs and like the superiority has been totally lost. And I think it really is this idea of... Britain as a country being this kind of like powerhouse in terms of global relations, but also people's sense of self, their sense of superiority mm. and their sense of what it is to be British. It's so difficult to have that discussion about colonialism and empire because you have politicians like Blair saying it's both good and bad, Brown saying we don't want to apologise for it, no one wanting to apologise for Amritsar. Like there yeah. is a real denial about what that British history means. Mm. And I think... 
for me, what the core of it is, is if Britain, if people have to reckon with that history, they have to also reckon with the, the notion that Britain didn't develop itself because it was... It, had, it possessed the right skills to develop, right? It's this idea that's all done internally within Britain. If you understand that British history, you understand that that Industrial Revolution, you understand all this development that happened in Britain came from its engagement and exploitation of the colonies, right? Mm. And so if you understand that history, this sense of British exceptionalism that exists, like we are a nation that goes it alone and we have this brilliant, yeah, intellectual genius at the, at the centre of what it is to be British, that that is much more difficult to believe if you understand that the history has always been one of interconnectedness. And that's something Gaminda Bamber, the academic, talks yeah. a lot about, is British history has never been just British history. It's always been interconnected with its empire, the Commonwealth, and then Europe. Mm, yeah, I mean, there was a, I think it was the 2014 poll that showed 44% yes. of Brits didn't think colonialism was bad. Great. But I, I think, it, yeah, what it brings up for me is having done a little bit of work in the estates as well, it's, it seems very similar, you know, and you can't really have this conversation about empire and we're going to move on in a second, but you can't really have that conversation without talking about the construction of whiteness and how it's always a relational category. You know, you have to, the way that you kind of slash public services mm. and decimate industries and squash union rights and housing and all these things is by saying, we're going to take all these things away from you, but you're still going to have more than that person. Mm. And there was a, a friend of mine who was door knocking in the States and they were in the Midwest and they, uh, for Bernie, and they went and knocked on someone's door who was a, a white guy and was talking to him about, um, but, you know, wouldn't you want Medicare for all? Wouldn't you want, like, access to, to, health, to, to healthcare for everyone? And then he said, well, my neighbour's a Somali guy. Would he get it too? And then he was like, yeah. And he's like, I don't want it. Mm. And it's just <laughs> remarkable mm. how this idea that, like, even if I have nothing, if, if I have nothing but I can still tell myself I'm better than this other person, then I have something. Yeah. We could ca continue on that. <laughs> um, but I want to I wanna go to audience questions soon. Um, and before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about alternatives. You know, we like to be positive at the end. So, yeah, if you can... It's a big question. If you could uh, redesign the immigration system from scratch, yeah. uh, what would be some of the things that you would consider, like, you would want to put at the, at the yeah. heart of that? Yeah. I've spent so much time thinking, well, this is so hard because the system is so bad. And, like, so there's some, there's some really simple things you can do, right, which just, like, basic things like legal aid, like, introduce that, um, reintroduce that, you make sure that people are informed about... The decisions like so if you're going to accept there is an immigration system you have to make it function in a way that people can navigate and that people can understand what's happening with their claims there's also work that looks at whether you can close down immigration detention centers almost in their entirety and have people staying within community and have a kind of social worker kind of figure is liaising between the state and the person who is waiting on their claim so that you aren't locked up away from whatever community that you live in for significant amounts of time so there, are, there is work on that and thinking about how you reform the system. I'm kind of loath to say all this because it's like accepting that there will you be a system. You said so much that you're loath to say. I know, well, I am. <laughs> it's like, because it does, there is a problem with an immigration system, right, and what it means. But if you are going to have it, there's also something, so Omar, who I mentioned before, who's the director of the Renamee Trust, I'm also on the board of the Renamee Trust, I feel like I should say, because well, I'm yeah. plugging it so much. Yeah. Um, but something that Omar said as well is that thinking about whether you have some kind of... Um, almost like a lottery system where people from around the world can just get visas to come and live in the UK and stay and then have really easy routes to citizenship so that it's not always on this basis of 
how much do you contribute? What is your job title? What skills do you have? But actually, it's a more redistributive system because while we have a really unfair global economy that the UK as a whole benefits from, mm. then is there a way to make it so that it's easier for people from different parts of the world um, that are suffering economically to come to countries like the UK? Um, that's something that he has argued for, which I think is a really is a compelling idea. But what it makes me think is there should also be a way to try and change the system so that... Once people get here, their route to citizenship, if they should want it, is easier. But also once they get here, they have the full gamut of rights. Mm. And that's part of the problem is you're knowing your rights and then the rights that are available to you is very patchy. And so making sure that it's not just like, you know, if you're on a temporary work visa, that your rights are really terrible because mm. you're only here temporarily. So trying to reform the system in that way um, would also be good, I think. Okay, and in terms of the kind of conversation or the discourse around immigration, what would kind of changing that up to make it a little less horrendous look like? We have another quote from the book. So you say, it's often been suggested that there are two options for the left in the immigration debate, either ignoring anti-immigrant views or capitulating to them. But there is a third choice, listening, but also seeking to persuade people that immigration is not the problem. Yeah, I just think there hasn't been a concerted effort ever by the British, by the party political left to change the debate on immigration. And I think that we saw that in 2015 when the like message the message from Miliband's Labour was like change the change the topic, change the subject, talk about the NHS. Look away. Yeah, just anything yeah. else, anything else that we're like strong on, talk about that. And so it didn't they didn't want to they didn't want to confront it whilst they were also reinforcing the negative discourse. And I think actually I think with Corbyn's Labour, there has been some there's been some pushback on some of the some of the discourse, but I don't think it's it hasn't to me it hasn't been uh, there hasn't been as concerted effort to change the debate on immigration as there has on the economy, right? Mm. If you think about the, all the work put into changing the economic debate, and that is in part because they have the policies, right? There is more policies there that they have that I mean historically also exist on the left. Um, but that speaks volumes as well, that there's more yes. policies. Yeah, and I think it's to do with... I mean, it's to do with a lot of different things, but partly is to do with EU and the Brexit, mm. the Brexit debate. But I think not giving in to some of those arguments about immigration, so, like, for instance, the argument that free movement must end, I think is not an argument that you should be reproducing and giving into because it basically reproduces the idea that immigration is a problem to be dealt with. Mm. And I think... It's, it's hard, and this is part of the difficulty of, have, of, of talking about this, is on the one hand, I think politicians and activists, um, and people who care about this subject, should be going out and engaging people in discussion about immigration and trying to change minds in the sense of you listen to people and then you put forward an alternative. Um, so it's not, as is often said, that you just want to go up to everyone and call them a racist and then walk away. But you want to recognise where racism... Wait, what? That's what I've been doing this whole time. (laughs) That's not necessarily the best way, but you want to recognise where racism is functioning in the debate and then try and change people's minds on that and try and do work on that. But I think the problem is, is people want a quick fix. I don't think for everyone that that's going to change in one conversation. I also don't think it's going to just change through campaigning. I think it's also a much longer... We got to this point over decades and decades and decades and decades of people saying the same bad things about immigration. And yes, there have been people saying alternative things, but they have never or rarely been at the forefront of the public conversation. And they haven't been shaping policy or shaping our curriculums. And so I just think it will take time. But I think... You've got to start, it has started in some circles, right? It already exists in some circles. But I also, one thing I really want to do 
is like be in charge of changing the education system and do like the opposite of what Michael Gove did. Just that. Just like <laughs> do a reverse Michael Gove and make, <laughs> make it so that, you know, we teach about this stuff properly. And there are, there are, there's a huge appetite. I meet so many teachers who want to be teaching about these histories of migration and empire. And if you do that, you at least equip people with the tools to be able to challenge and dissect some of these myths that we hear, even if you don't automatically change the debate overnight. Fantastic. Okay, we're going to open up to questions. You have a question, I see you. Um, the, the way that we're going to do it is we're going to do uh, two rounds of three. So I'm going to take three questions and then I'm going to hand them over to Maya and then we're going to do another two rounds. In the first, I'd like to just open it to women and non-binary folks and then the second round of questions will be open to everyone. So, round one. So many unhappy male faces. I love you. <laughs> yes. You kind of touched on it really shortly, kind of, um, about NHS and universities and schools having to check visas and become immigration officers. And there's prevent consultation happening at the moment. What would be your key asks in that consultation if you, had, if you would respond? Amazing. Thank you. Uh, uh, yes. Um, how do you rethink the way that we define refugees? Because I think that's a big problem in uh, deporting people and sending people back because the definition isn't really good. Uh, so, yeah, how would you redefine it? Thank you. And one more. Yes. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in is that like, um, people who agree with us are concentrating in cities. What do we do about changing views in areas that we actually don't live in? Mm, great yeah. question. Okay, so we had three questions. The first one was um, on the NHS and the prevent um, consultation. The second one was about redefining refugees. And the third one was about yeah. kind of getting outside of the city bubbles and yeah. talking to people in places that we don't, where we don't live. Yeah. Okay, first, uh, I'll start with the refugees one because I think that's, there's so much to be said about that. Um, I mean, there's a problem, I guess there's a number of different problems. One is who is classed, like who's who's captured by that definition, right? So it was written a long time ago in the 1951 Refugee Convention. And so one of our problems now is that, I mean, it was never to include people who were fleeing economic um, upheaval. So it didn't ever, that's why you get this figure of the economic migrant. Um, it was people with a well-founded persecution for fear of their fear of their life, basically. And you also it also means that you don't get people who are fleeing now climactic changes, so environmental change aren't covered by the Refugee Convention. So one thing that's happening is there are people who are advocating for having the the category of a climate refugee and trying to get states to sign up to this idea of a climate refugee so that people who are leaving because of climactic changes at least can be considered by states and when they're um, when they're fleeing that wherever their homes are. But the other thing about it, so there's this problem about who is covered by the definition, but then there's a the problem which I think you were more speaking to, which is also even if someone is has well-founded fear of persecution or fear for their life, um, they aren't necessarily given refugee status right so you you get to a country and you can put in your asylum claim and then you wait for the state to process it and one of the fundamental problems with the refugee convention is states need to consider that those claims and they aren't supposed to return people back to countries where they fear for their lives they don't have to give them refugee status and it's on on the government to decide or the government officials to decide whether someone's claim is accurate or not and that is part of like one of the big problems without the way we talk about it in the UK is like people talk about bogus asylum seekers or people who are lying or who are, their claims aren't real 
people. But the problem is, is that A, that is applied to loads of different people all the time when it shouldn't be. But B, it's assumed that just because the, the uh, whatever government official you've interacted with has decided that you don't meet the criteria and you haven't proven that you have fear for your life, that therefore yeah. you are bogus. And I mean, in terms of... Like the solutions to that, I think, as well as thinking about a more expansive de- defini- definitions or maybe new systems, because there's a there's a fear that if you tamper with the 51 convention um, and then the subsequent protocol, that you will there's it's too difficult to get signed up from states. So if you if you change that, it, like things fall by the wayside and you risk losing countries who are already signed up to it. Um, and that's why there maybe will should be an alternative convention that covers stuff like climate i think in terms of rethinking the way we talk about the think about refugees and people seeking asylum it requires a government that is going to reinstate policy that means that people can work when they're here and they're waiting on their claims and they have decent rights to housing and they aren't dispersed around the country but also like changing the public discourse around how we talk about refugees and asylum seekers that has again i know i've said this a few times but it has built up over a long time of like thinking about people as bogus and what you find when you talk to people is like they'll say they'll either say oh yeah we know there's refugees but we just don't have space in britain so that's another problem like the space argument that is just uh, it's untrue we've got we've got loads of space or they say like we don't we don't know who's real and who's not and i think actually some kind of public engagement with people that that how the system functions it doesn't mean that you aren't actually you shouldn't you aren't a refugee just because the state decides or government official decides actually you haven't met the right criteria we need a more compassionate system and i think that also requires retraining of people who are looking at those cases or proper training um to begin with um sorry that's quite a long answer which is why i tried to take that on first uh changing views um (laughs) yeah i mean i think it but maybe you know better than I do, right? I mean, maybe people who are doing the campaigning and doing the work know better than I do in terms of how you do that. I think it requires a sustained, concerted effort of engaging people around the country, right? So there are people who live like, all over the country in places where they don't necessarily agree with the things that their neighbours or whoever, their colleagues, whatever they're saying. It is about engaging those people and trying to figure out why it is that they think the things that they do about immigration or about asylum or about refugees... I do think that that is just going to take time. So, like, there is the classic thing of, oh, I don't like immigrants. And you say, okay, but the person, this person in your life is an immigrant. They say, not that, not that person. It's all, it's, all the other, it's all the other ones that are the problem, right? And so I think part of that is doing some of the myth-busting. Myth I know the line is you tell stories, but I think the myth-busting also matters in terms of if you're going to make a sustained effort. And then I do think... Having talking to people about the people in their lives who are refugees, migrants, asylum seekers, and saying, you know, is this like these are the people you're talking about? These are the he- real human beings you're talking about. And I think there's something actually that Matthew Butcher, who's in the audience, just said to me just before. I'm gonna, I needed to give you credit. Um, uh, that is what we also need to say. Immigration is going to happen, right? It's happening. You can't stop it. People are always going to have to move. No matter how, how strong your borders are, people are still going to move into the country. We need people to come here. So what are we going to do about that? If your issue is the pace of change in your area, for instance, what do you want to do? Do you want to close all those shops that now exist and get the, the force those people to go home? And some people are probably going to say yes. But I mean, if you plant the idea in their head, like wh- how do you want to reverse this? And how far does that reversing go back? Because does it mean like the thing that Nigel Farage said 
And it was polled a few years ago where it's something like 24% of people want any of us whose parents were not, whose mother was not born in the UK to be repatriated. Like, um, like, you know, is that like, I think having that discussion with people in a non in a non-confrontational way. Um, mm-hmm. But like, what is the reality of it? How far, about, how far does the change need to happen? I think there isn't a silver, like one silver bullet to dealing with all this stuff. But I do think actually engaging with people on this is going to be important. Um, Can I add something real yes, quick? Yeah, cool. just to add something on that, Suki, really quickly. It's, it's just what I said before, essentially, is often when you engage with people about the reasons underneath the anti-immigration sentiment, like, it, it is it's actually anti-austerity or it's other things it's like well there you know there isn't I don't want immigrants to use the school or to use the housing service or whatever because my daughter's been on the waiting list for social housing which is mm. I was I was told for 50 years and then an immigrant mm. family got it first and it's like well actually the problem is is the decimation of social housing and so sometimes when you actually have those conversations as well about the root causes for the 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 issues that people are raising it can help you move in the right direction and i've got to say just because of what has been in the news um today one of the clearest and starkest examples of that for me is grenfell right the people who lived in grenfell were from all over the world including people born in britain and none of them were listened to right so this idea that it is the the immigrant or the asylum seeker or the refugee that is your problem these people were pitted against each other, lived in that same tower and were all ignored. And I think that that is a really, really powerful way of showing that actually the things that government does to immigrants and the, the things, it, and like not all immigrants, right? It's people who, are, um, who tend not to be white and people who tend to be poorer, right? So when we're talking about immigrants, it isn't everyone that migrates into the country um, and is here for 12 months or more. The policies they introduce and the things that they do to the certain groups of immigrants are the things that they also do to working class Britons, right? And that's one of the most interesting things from the research for the book is I interviewed a journalist who does loads of who's been doing loads of reporting on austerity, and what she says is you just find migrants and working class Britons rubbing up against alongside one another in all of these places where they're trying to get support, right? So what is done to the immigration system, it being incredibly complex and it being incredibly costly, is like mirrored by the benefits and disability system, right? Mm. These things are not separate from one another. David Cameron himself said immigration and benefits that the changes that we're making they're two sides of the same coin, mm. and it's often. True trialed as well on on migrant communities i think that someone i interviewed was talking about how the kind of data sharing technology that the government was uh, developing and trialing with um doctors having to report people to the home office they were then also trying to figure out how they could that roll that out to use people's medical records to deny them benefits mm. who are you know uh, white working class Brits mm. essentially so it's definitely like um, migrants being used as kind of test cases as well mm-hmm. um, I want you to answer the last question oh yeah so um, uh, prevent I mean maybe you have a better uh, idea than I do by also I think fundamentally questioning the, the functioning of prevent and its purpose is actually an important thing to be doing but also I think it's just not I don't think it's right for universities to be doing these kinds of checks on their students and I know a lot of people I just finished my PhD here at SOAS um, earlier this year, and I know so many people who had to report to um, the university. Just I didn't have to at all, right? They had to periodically engage with the university in a way that I just didn't have to. And I think those kinds of checks are totally unsuitable to be carried out by higher education institutions. People who are supposed to be your teachers, educators, or the people that you interact with and who learn from you and you learn from them should not be the people who are having to check your immigration status every so often. I think that that is 
I fundamentally disagree with that. Yeah, or report children for reading certain books yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. Um, okay, we're going to come back out. There was a hand down here, and it was the first hand of all the hands. <laughs> I want to come to you. Brilliant, thank you. It's, um, thank you. It's an amazing talk. I've learned so much. Um, I've got a quick question then. Recently, we've had that awful case in Essex where the 39 dead, dead migrants were found inside the refrigerated truck. After a couple of days, we had the sickening sight of Pretty Patel, I think it was, speaking in the House of Commons about what an awful crime it was and how the dead people's only crime had been to search for a new life. And um, I'd be interested to hear how you contrast that to the normal rhetoric we hear about, again, if these poor people hadn't died in the truck and had been rounded up in subsequent raids under the hostile environment, they would be not getting this description. So cynically, you could say that... The, the only good migrant is a dead migrant as far as the government are concerned. So I'd just like to be interested how you talk about that and how they have the cheek to do that, please. Thank you. Uh, there's one down here just behind you. Thank you very much for your talk. I'm from Palestine, and when you said tying it up with history, the British history and the whole topic of immigration and refugees, so, for example, our topic is purely political. Our lands and our homes were given away uh, by the Balfour de Declaration, and it's still celebrated until this day in Britain. It was our catastrophe where two-thirds of our people were, became refugees, but it's still celebrated as if it's something like... So, in terms of politics, it, a lot is political that's still going on, the notion of, of you know, refugees. It's, it's, the core is politics. So, can you please address or talk a bit about that? Thank you. Thank you. The person with the blue hair. I like it. Uh, thank you, it's also green. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if you'd heard uh, <laughs> what, what? this flourish of rhetoric um, that I've sometimes come across from the Home Office recently, that, oh, it's not the hostile environment anymore, we're now talking about the compliant environment. Mm. Um, and obviously uh, it's easy to dismiss that as just language, but I wondered if there was like any analysis of that. Mm. Okay, great. So we had a question on the rhetoric around the Essex tragedy. We had a question about the politics of the entire debate, but particularly through the lens of the comparison with Palestine and the Nakba. And we had a question about the switch to the compliant environment from the hostile environment. Yeah, so the compliant environment thing, it's funny, I was talking to someone who does a lot of work, like interacting with the Home Office, um, and right after Windrush, they were saying, oh yeah, there have been, it actually feels like there has been some changes. And there, there is in the sense of like... Uh, being aware of the view of how the how this is seen in terms of what happened with Windrush. And I think there has, as I've said, there's been some like rolling back of policy or there's been the JCWI took the government to court, I think, for the housing policy. So the landlords having to check people's documentation for being racially discriminatory. And I think the Home Office is still appealing that, um, mm. that ruling. Uh, but I think there hasn't really been... I mean, the fundamental policies more or less. There's been some changes, but they still stay in place. And so it looks, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, but I don't imagine, you know, we had, do have a home sec who she, you know, has talked about ending free movement immediately. And the rhetoric that comes out of this existing government isn't very different from the, what came before, if, if not worse. So I think, I don't see much change, but we'll wait and see. I don't work in the home office, so I don't know all the ins and outs of what takes place in there. I don't see any change, any major change, though, and the people I talk to doesn't seem to be any major change either. And on... Um, I mean, I guess these two are kind of related, thinking about the politics of how people are talked about and then thinking about, I guess, people getting sympathy only in death. Yeah, I think we saw that with Alan Kurdi as well, right? When Alan Kurdi died um, and there was that picture of him face down on that beach, 
there was a lot of discussion about changing the way the immigration system works in Europe. There was like some momentary change, but long term that has not happened. People are still trying to cross the Mediterranean and people are still dying. As we saw from that, um, the 39 people who were found dead in Essex, there are people who are just really desperate. When you introduce more bordering policies, it just makes that movement more dangerous and difficult. It doesn't stop that movement. And I think it's tied up with thinking about the politics of all of this. It's also politically convenient, I think, for a lot of politicians, as well as being ideologically salient, it is politically convenient for a lot of them to continue using the same rhetoric and thinking about, with, with little concern about the political implications and with little concern for the responsibilities to people when states like Britain have been involved in creating a lot of the crises that mean people have to flee their homes. There is little engagement with that. Um, and I think it is politically convenient for politicians to talk about certain groups, pro- to problematise certain groups so that they, we aren't looking or people aren't looking at what is the cause of policy like that Aisha's talked about in terms of like the decimation of our public services. It is the classic thing, right, of blame your neighbour instead of blaming the people who are in government. Okay, do we have time for one more quick one? Yes, great. Uh, three last super quick questions. Uh, there, uh, there's one there, and then one there, and then one there, so you can just do like a... Shout it out and I'll repeat them. Okay, um, I was just wondering how you think the state benefits um, from the kind of border regimes you're seeing today. And obviously the title of your book suggests like it has a scapegoating function. Is it just mainly, do you see that as the main reason to scapegoat for the effects of austerity or are there other things? Thank you. Uh, there was one. Yeah, um, you talked about the complicity of left-wing party politics in like the system, and we've seen a change in some left-wing party politics through activist work, like Labour Free Green New Deal, yeah. that sort of thing. What space do you see for that in changing the framing of the immigration debate, and what would that look like? Okay. Great, and um, one more there. Uh, hi, I was wondering, from the perspective of like, the government actors who are pushing these hostile immigration policies, um, to what extent do you think that main aim really is to kind of cap or control the actual raw numbers of immigrants in the country? Yeah. You know, keep them out, uh, close the borders, yeah. um, as opposed, you know, relative to other motivations like you, you've touched on, like, for example, removing migrant rights, so yeah. thinking of, like, labour and political rights. Yeah. Great. So I'm just to recap for the thing. So yeah, we had three questions. First one on the ways in which the state benefits from border regimes. The second question was on uh, the general complicity of the left and if that can, if we can change the frame. Um, and then the last question on government actors and is it really about numbers or actually curtailing other rights? Yeah. So I think there's uh, these two, two of them overlap in a way actually. So in terms of like benefiting from border regimes and like the main aim. Yeah. Um, so this idea that. Uh, the aim is to like control numbers. Um, I don't think ever really, it didn't really tally with what was happening in terms of the immigration regime. So if you look at what was happening when Theresa May was talking about getting immigration down to the tens of thousands, like it's true they wanted to create a really hostile system. They wanted to make it really difficult for people who are undocumented. But at the same time, they also knew they needed people to come in and do work. And so they were giving visas to non-EU migrants, this like temporary visas, right? In some cases, like the visa system is incredibly complicated. And so... It is about the thing that you're talking about, making sure that you have kind of a disposable workforce, making sure that you have people who can come in and do the work that you want, but you can also remove them when you want to, making it really difficult. Like the amount of time you have to be in the country to get citizenship is incredibly long. And so I think this kind of links with the what, how does the state benefit from border regimes? I don't actually think it's just a scapegoating function. I think it is, 
it's part ideological. So like the idea of the nation state and protecting the idea of the nation state and what it means to be British and what it means to ensure that you, ha you know, have strong borders and who belongs here and who doesn't in terms of these kind of nebulous value systems. But it is also, I think, has to be seen as tied up with like the labour rights and um, the working conditions and making sure... One of the things that was talked about by someone who is one of those anti... Um, immigration professionals I was talking about before advocated for when we were talking about the immigration system and what was going to happen post-Brexit advocated for some kind of really temporary visa system where people could come in and do night shifts what? Um, uh, uh, well no I don't think leave overnight but they would be specifically <laughs> given work for night shifts but the visas would be temporary and then wow. they would have to you know leave the country after a certain amount of time it's about this is the thing that New Labour did talk about is like creating a like a flexible workforce and that word flexible is carrying a lot of meaning in it there um, in terms of like who you want to come in and what jobs you want them to do and how you want to be able to get rid of them. Um, so I don't think it is just simply a case of always scapegoating. I think that is actually, although yes, that is the title of the book, is, is more, it is more com complicated than that because it is politically, it's useful both politically but also in terms of what you want to achieve um, within uh, economically and in terms of how the workforce functions. The question... Okay, yeah, if, if it, this is like the last um, question, maybe it's something positive to end on. Yes. Um, so thinking about, the, you, someone asked about the left and is there like similarities with like people, activists organising for Green New Deal. If you see from Labour Party conference, there was um, Labour against racism and fascism and Labour, the Labour campaign for freedom of movement, two different organisations, but both um, trying to organise and advocate for better immigration policy within the Labour Party. And one of the motions that was put to conference from, from one of those groups, I think it was Labour Campaign for Free Movement, was about extending free movement, um, keeping free movement and extending it. It was about closing all detention centres, changing like, the discourse on immigration. And that went to conference floor and it passed overwhelmingly. We don't know what's going to be in the Labour Party manifesto. Um, but the point is, is that people organised, people did organise and they, they wanted to force some kind of change in terms of how immigration is talked about and how it, like, the policy that is created around it from the left. And yeah, as I say, it remains to be seen what will happen in an election. But the promising thing is, is until then that hadn't happened, right? So people, activists have cottoned onto this, they have organised and they have organised for change. And I think it's also... Or activist groups outside of the Labour Party and the Labour movement that are also doing some really, really important and good work. And so to think that everything is just about the Labour movement ignores actually all those campaigning groups, some of whom I mentioned before, like Docs Not Cops, um, Nelma in London that does a lot of uh, support work and organising and advocating for migrants. There's people who I've interviewed in the book across the country who are doing really great work activist groups but also people who are providing support to migrants and so the fact that those people are doing that work and care and want to change the debate I think is a good thing and it is just about continuing to put on pressure and to continuing to try to force politicians but also force people around you to have a, you know take a different view on immigration or think about this slightly differently and I think that it's not going to go away it's going to, be going to continue no matter what happens with the election or with Brexit it's something that is so deeply embedded that that change we really need, it's going to take time and it's going to take all of us forcing it to happen. Okay. Thank you, Maya. Sadly, that is all we've got time for, but please join me in saying a big thank you to Maya Goodfellow. <laughs> I guess that's 
Uh, so Maya's book, Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats, is available in bookshops now. She tells me it's actually in Waterstones, which is round the corner. <laughs> so if anyone wants to go have a social and buy the book and have a coffee, then I would recommend that. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. Uh, as always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. From me and our audience here in London... <laughs> Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week. Thanks everyone.